Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. This week is coming to a close pretty much where it started in European politics. Boris Johnson is on course for Downing Street. Ursula von der Leyen is still scrambling to get the magic 375 votes she needs to become European Commission president. Donald Trump is raging against the establishment machine. And Angela Merkel is trembling again at a public event. So if you took your holiday this week already, that was clever. If you're taking it next week, there's a good chance all hell will break loose while you're gone. Enjoy! On that note, let's get straight into this week's episode. Before the podcast panel, I'm talking to Paul Adamson. He's a man who knows everyone and has done nearly everything in Brussels, except be a frontline politician. He's founded several lobbying firms, a think tank, chairs an events company, worked for a law firm, hosts an exclusive summer garden party, and even has his own EU-themed podcast, eSharp. And as he isn't shy to point out, he started it all before EU Confidential got going. So let's hear from Paul Adamson. Joining me now on EU Confidential is a man that Politico has previously described as the godfather of lobbying in Brussels, Paul Adamson. Welcome, Paul. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Pleased to be here. But you've had many, many guises and titles, and you've started several firms during your time in Brussels. And I was just realizing as we walked over here to do this interview that there was a Luxembourgish prime minister in the hot seat at the Berlimont. He was the European Commission president, Gaston Thorn, when you arrived in Brussels. Yeah. We're talking 40 years ago now. And there's a, still a Luxembourgish prime minister there in the hot seat. What, what changed in the middle and why are we still getting these Luxembourgers? Yeah, well, as the Brits might say, plus ça change. When dinosaurs ruled the earth, I arrived almost 40 years ago and Gaston Thorn, you said, was president of the European Commission. And now we have Juncker Juncker in his final days and weeks and months. And in between, we had, of course, a third Luxembourg Prime Minister Commission president, Jacques Santerre. I will not, unless you press me, give any kind of uh, verdict on the, on the quality and the leadership of those three particular commission presidents. There we go. A true lobbyist. It's very, or a diplomat, really. Isn't that right? Yeah. Now, one of the other big characters that you came across during your time in Brussels, I'm thinking of Boris Johnson, now that he's about to get into the hot seat at Downing Street. What do you recall from your interactions with him? You, you crossed paths a few times. Well, as you know, I'm not a, I'm, I may have more than one hat, but none of them are 
the hat of journalists, and there are more journalists in his town who can claim rightly they have a, had a more close relationship with Boris as a fellow hack in the media pool. But what people maybe don't really appreciate, he was here almost 30 years ago as a 24, 25-year-old. He was already a character and a personality then, even though he was very, very young. And he, he was basically the same person then as he is now, outspoken, larger than life, trying to be very disruptive. And somewhat slippery with the truth, I think, is a criticism many people make of Boris. Well, allegedly, all these, it's true, all these made-up stories. It's extraordinary that the, the people who claim that one of the reasons why the Leave campaign was so effective three years ago in the UK referendum was, was, the, was the culmination of all these stories that have been, have been written maybe by Boris himself appearing in the, in the British media o- over several years. But he's something of a... I wouldn't say a cultivated personality, but I think he curates some of this messiness in a way. And he strikes me as someone who is also very much the retail politician. You know, he knows how to handle people in a small environment and remember certain details about them and things like that. Is is that something that really came across in his Brussels years? Well, then and and now, if you see him, I met him recently, and he is still that same kind of person. If it was another person like Bill Clinton or somebody, you would say he was charismatic. He had the same skills as Bill Clinton. He remembers your name. He asks how you are. He looks you in the eye. He smiles, maybe makes some kind of glib comment. And... uh, For a while, of course, this was, for him, a huge positive factor for Boris Johnson. As you know, as well as I do now, in the context of the current British Conservative leadership contest, it's now more of a Marmite thing. You either like Boris still and find him terribly charming and funny and and great and wonderful, or you find him totally uh, a crook and a liar, and the guy should not be held anywhere near 10 Downing Street. Speaking of crooks and liars, uh, lobbying doesn't have the best reputation in a lot of circles, and we've seen that bubbling up in so many different ways. This idea that Brussels is overrun by lobbyists. We've had a recent, I wouldn't call it a scandal, but a bunch of concerns raised about how Monsanto was conducting its lobbying over glyphosate. You've got a bunch of NGOs campaigning to basically say there's revolving doors and you know that this is a, a kind of dirty business, let's say. But you've seen that business evolve from when there were relatively few people here. Now we've got multinational chains effectively running many lobbying shops in Brussels. How do you think the practice has actually changed and, and what can the industry do to make people see that it's a legitimate part of the democratic process? Well, I really feel I have to push back on this about crooks and lies and dirty business. I'm kind of semi-detached now, as you know, from this profession. So it's not really my, in my interest or, or my job or responsibility to defend the profession. But Brussels is a town full of lobbyists. Some don't like to call themselves lobbyists or to be seen and described as lobbyists. But I would suggest that everybody in the EU framework is lobbying in some shape or form. Other member state governments, third country, representations, missions, embassies, uh, civil society groups, trade unions, charities, NGOs, and last but not least, obviously, corporations and their trade associations. So everybody is lobbying in some shape or form. And what is different now, of course, is a and a very welcome and maybe long overdue realisation that we have to have much more transparency in the lobbying process. But I think it's, it's too much of a, if I may say so, a cheap thing to say that lobbyists are all you know, on the make and dishonest and acting in a, in a nefarious way. I think it's just not up to scrutiny. Mm-hmm. What are some of the lobbying campaigns that you've been proud to be involved in? And maybe I should stop using that word, but you know, you've been the face of lots of pro-European activities 
on behalf of British people, and if not on behalf of British people, certainly in concert with other Brits in Brussels. And it just strikes me that you've seen a lot of things come and go in this town. Like, what are some of the things that stand out as real achievements? Well, I'm not going to get too much involved in maybe lobby campaigns. I was never really a lobbyist. I don't mind the word lobbying uh, or lobbyist, but I was never a lobbyist myself. I never walked around with a, a business card with the name of a client on it claiming to represent that particular interest. My, my job, my role, the reason I was paid and had clients was to give advice sort of behind the scenes and work out a strategy and suggest how to go about approaching people and then the client would go off and do it. In a broader sense, which is why you talked about my various hats I've tried to acquire because I have a very big head, therefore I need more than one hat, is because I was very keen and I always have, have been, but especially now on the back of Brexit, I'm acutely aware that the European Union is not very well understood, certainly in the United Kingdom, my home country, but arguably in any member state, never mind the rest of the world. And also, more maybe as importantly for the Brussels crowd in the current Brexit context, people here in Brussels, maybe until very recently at least, did not understand the UK and its approach to Europe. And is that something about tending to the ecosystem? And let me clarify that. I think that a lot of people treat the EU in a very transactional form. And then you also have members of the Brussels bubble, the people who are kind of Brussels lifers, let's say, who treat the EU almost as a religion. Yeah. And I really feel like the people who treat it as a religion and the ones who treat it as a transaction are somehow missing the point that there is a middle zone where you need to take the EU seriously, but you need to question it at the same time. I mean, I feel like maybe sort of your most lasting contribution is as that connector, someone who brings people to that grey zone and that middle ground and makes people see some of the nuance of what this project is. Is that a role you still see yourself playing in this community? Well, I will see how much energy and, and enthusiasm is still left in me. But uh, seriously, yeah, I think without being hopefully too pompous, I think that's for me has been a really, really important part of my so-called career. I've done a number of things, you know, apart from running consultancies, one of which is starting a magazine almost 20 years ago, uh, called E-Sharp, which was... Which is now a podcast. Which is we're, now, ri- we're podcast rivals. I should have declared yeah, that when we yeah, started yeah. chatting. I'll let the record show that my podcast started before your podcast. Let hope that's, <laughs> that survives the editing <laughs> process. Um, more seriously, the magazine was all about trying to get, again, Europe to understand the Brits and the Brits to understand Europe. It was just before the... The the euro was getting off the ground. There was a possibility of a referendum in in the UK on the euro, uh, all that kind of stuff. And maybe it fell between two stools occasionally, a bit too geeky for the non-specialist, a bit too non-specialist for the geeks, as it were. But I very much believed in that that product and that project. I'm kind of proud of it, even though it cost me a ridiculous amount of money to sustain. And then secondly, I started this thing called the Centre, which was obviously... A commercial operation on one level because I had to, in effect, subsidize the non-commercial activities. But that was also an attempt. We called it the Thing Do Tank. And I had some wonderful people working with me to make that a reality. But it was trying to, again, to bring people together, not in a kind of kumbaya, you know, Woodstock kind of way, but bringing especially Brits, you know, because I can't maybe be responsible for every nationality in the European Union, uh, to Brussels and expose them to Brussels and get these people in Brussels to be exposed to the Brits. And now that we're living in this kind of Brexit world. I mean, I guess I can't skip over the fact that Brits have played an outsized role in a lot of this public-facing activity Mm. in Brussels, let's say. And I think there's something about the openness of British people in general, that it's a very inclusive environment when you try and have these debates, these discussions, you create these forums. I think some other nationalities, possibly because of the language factor, Mm. are a bit more closed. They're not necessarily open to outsiders. And I see the, the role a lot of Brits have played where they tend to float between different sectors. They kind of want other people to participate in the events. Do you think that is going to 
fundamentally change when Brexit occurs? Is there going to be a bit of a rolling down of the garage door and, and where there are fewer Brits in Brussels and then there are fewer invitations offered to Brits in Brussels and, and less of that kind of organic exchange? We don't know, of course. We have to assume for the sake of argument, for the purpose of your question, that Brexit will happen. As you know, I've been in not in denial for three years, but in refusal for three years. And even now, I still don't believe that the UK will actually leave the EU. And I'm sorry if some of your listeners feel very disappointed by that comment. But it assumes for the sake of argument that the UK does leave the EU at some point. You could argue the, almost the opposite, Ryan, which is that the UK establishment certainly will have to invest far more in being present for the simple reason they will not be in the room or the rooms when decisions are, are taken, when policy is being formulated. So the UK government and its, and its agencies and its a kind of official ecosystem will have to find a lot of creative ways to, first of all, to be informed about what the, what the hell is going on since they won't be privy to the conversations by dint of being in the room, they'll be outside. And secondly, once they've got that information, how they go about trying to influence whatever policy directions and initiatives that they want to, to influence. And so one hears anecdotally that the what's called UK representation here at the European Union, UCRA, uh, will be staffed up, big, beefed up in its terms of staffing big time uh, after Brexit, if Brexit happens. Uh, certain certain uh, UK embassies and key member states in the European Union will be will have uh, will have more personnel and have more budget to just again for the kind of bilateral stuff they need to do. So it's going to be a, a whole new world, and I would argue almost the opposite. There's a kind of conventional wisdom that. The Brits are being written out of the plot or writing themselves out of the plot. And you, you hear every now and again about a senior Brit leaving the European Commission, whatever, maybe taking early retirement or not, whatever, not being promoted. But I think, on the contrary, that there's going to be a whole new and rather interesting, actually, even at my stage of my career, period where new era, frankly, if Brexit happens. Uh, when, where, where Brits are actually the biggest lobbyists of all. Well, yeah, exactly. And there'll happen. be a combination, exactly, there'll be the biggest lobbyist, is your word of all, and a combination of official lobbying by the government and its agencies, as they would do now, frankly, like any member state, but also the world around it, the corporate world, obviously, the the civil society world the, uh, and all the other agencies and, and groups that want to have some kind of, not just know what, what's going on in Europe, but uh, try to influence it. Even if we do leave, we'll still be part in a very indirect way of the European project, quote unquote. Now, speaking of the UK permanent representation, you've jogged my memory. We've had a former UK perm rep, as they're known here in Brussels, Kim Darrick, Sir Kim Darrick. He's been in the news this week quite a lot. Some cables that he wrote, we presume they're accurate cables, that he sent back to London have been leaked and they're not very flattering about the Trump administration. Flattering or not, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is someone has been very malicious and is out to damage him or his successor and we don't know who that is at this point in time. But, I mean, you know Sir Kim quite well. What must be going through his head right now? Like, how much of a shock to the British diplomatic system is something like this? Well, first of all, I have to preface this a bit, Ryan, with our grandstand that he is a, a good friend, a very good friend. We vacation together, all that kind of stuff, and our families and all that. Stay in each other's houses, or his house is a tiny bit bigger than, than mine in, in Washington. Um, and That's he's, borrowed, though. Yeah, 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 yeah. But no, but he's, I mean, he has broad shoulders. He can withstand this, in my view. As we all know, well, I think most people would argue he's just doing his job. And it's hardly a scoop to hear that President Trump was what's inept, inefficient, and insecure. That's hardly breaking news, even for Politico. He was just doing his job, as I think most people have been saying on social media and elsewhere. And of course, he has the critics out there who are rather, in my view, of dubious origin, like 
like Nigel Farage and his acolytes saying the guy has to be fired immediately and replaced by some unknown Brexiteer. Well, I, some would argue the leaker has to be fired. Well, this well, will have a chilling effect on fearless yeah. and frank advice. Well, exactly. That, that's the, maybe the more important point, isn't it? With the Because um, whether Kim stands down now or, my, in my view, he'll survive this, and rightly so, and, and finish his tour of duty in Washington when he wants to finish it sometime in the course of next year, it is exactly that, as you say, the, the source of this leak and why it's coming out now, what was the sensible purpose of that, and the impact, if you listen to all the, and hear all the, the mandarins and the former the retired diplomats out there saying this is not just bad for the current situation, whether it's Kim and the new prime minister, if you like, uh, but also the US administration in the UK in the context of a potential new trade discussion, it's more broadly the whole impact on the diplomatic service in this case of the UK, but arguably applying to any diplomatic service, if you can't write relatively candid and frank cables, messages, notes to your political bosses for fear of them being revealed in in the public domain, then nothing will happen. Or everyone will just have to gather on cruise ships around the world or be constantly flying back and forth to deliver the messages in person. Maybe one last topic I wanted to touch on, because you've written about it at length in the past. We've got a controversy right at this moment about who the next commission president will be. And, of course, this Spitzen candidate system where the parties were supposed to nominate or, in fact, did nominate a lead candidate for European Commission president in parallel to the European Parliament elections. And the national leaders were supposed to take those results into account. And what the national leaders have decided to do is not nominate one of those candidates, but they have chosen a person from uh, the party with the most seats. That's Ursula von der Leyen from the European People's Party. That's a big controversy. She's really struggling in the parliament to win the support she needs to become commission president. And you've explained in the past all the reasons why that system doesn't make a lot of sense, that the Spitzen candidate system was kind of doomed to fail. How are you feeling now? Are you feeling uh, justified that, uh, that what you said was correct, or have you got other mixed feelings? Well, this may sound a bit, a bit odd, but going back five years when the system first got off the ground, speaking as a kind of mini-me entrepreneur, I was rather impressed by the idea of trying something new and then even if it wasn't a, a full success, I'm talking about five years ago, in terms of, you know, it was measured by, for example, the turnout election, which was the self-proclaimed main objective by the p- proponents of the Spitzen candidate process to increase turnout. And that didn't happen, as you know, five years ago. But you could argue, well, you've got to start somewhere. And speaking again, as I stress, as a mini-me entrepreneur, you start somewhere and you sometimes you have a couple of you know, setbacks, but you keep going. And I like that from an entrepreneurial sense, that they try something new and they could build on that. What I find striking this time around five years later is that the proponents this time, they haven't really built on the success they could have built on, in my humble opinion, five years ago. They kind of almost uh, dropped the ball. And maybe they just assumed it was... In terms of, like, choosing candidates that weren't up to scratch or the way those candidates campaigned? Maybe, yeah. I mean, it's all very well to say we should have the the system, but then you have to have, you know, a particularly cold-blooded or forensic eye on on who these candidates are, right? And there's a... For every pro-European, you know, evangelist, but very sincere pro-European person out there who thinks he's a part of a creating a political European demos, there's not enough democracy in Europe, etc., etc., there's also a case to be made for the status of the European Commission in terms of its president being also a priority. And what's happened now, we had, well, you know, one thing that even the biggest, most ardent proponent of the Spitzenkandidaten could not really address was the quality of Manfred Weber. He's probably a perfectly nice guy, but... On paper, he wasn't the most stunning or outstanding guy in terms of experience. And well, so, what if the EPP had just chosen Alexander Stubb? 
I mean, like, wouldn't that have solved some of the problems? I think, I think you've written about that yourself, but it, I, exactly, it would have solved that problem straight away. And, and it's not a question of maybe their respective personalities, but yeah, Alex, as you know, is Prime Minister of Finland as well as Foreign Minister. I'm not even talking about his language skills and his personality, but just the fact that he had that status of a Prime Minister, even of a relatively small country. You said it over 35, 30 odd years, we've had three Luxembourg presidents of the European Commission, so the size of the country is not that important. But just the mere fact of having a Prime Minister. And I think that's where the proponents, as I said, got it, got it wrong. But you could also argue, to be fair, you said about the European Council was supposed to take account of the result of the election. Well, they could say, well, they, they have up to a point, and we're not, let's not argue now in the dying embers of this podcast, but they've chosen a, an EPP candidate, and they've chosen a German national EPP candidate to become president of the European Commission, which is not maybe not a million miles away from the fact that the European elections were won, quote-unquote, A, by the EPP, and by the EPP with a German national as their spitzen candidate. It's a fair reflection. I mean, my take on it is the council has asserted the rights it has under the EU treaty, that it never assented to the spitzen candidate process, so it hasn't been a hypocrite at all as an institution. They've just followed everything they were entitled to do. It looks like a backroom deal. I think there is some kind of bad smell to it because of how long it took to be engineered, let's say, and there's something that doesn't smell quite right about effectively telling the parliament who it should choose as its own president. That's not really how parliamentary democracy is supposed to work. But at the same time, the Spitzen candidate system was clearly quite flawed. And Manfred Weber, I've said it a million times, didn't even turn up to the job interview at the first Maastricht presidential debate. And I'd say that. I was the moderator of the debate. But, you know, if he's going to fail at so many hurdles... It's difficult to complain when you don't get the prize at the end. Yeah, it's almost as if we were going back earlier to the choice of presidents that there needs to be a real crisis, very briefly, without sounding too boring for your listeners, that 20 years ago, after the fall of the Sontag Commission, the, the institutions, but especially the Commission, was in deep crisis. You know, the first time ever a commission had fallen, and in effect, the president of the Commission, Jacques Santer, ex-Prime Minister of Luxembourg, had been sacked. And there was a huge panic, basically, institutional collective panic amongst leaders. And so they brought forward the decision to choose the next president of the commission by three months, if memory serves me correctly. So they rushed it, basically. In the shape. Well, they rushed it, but they were, they were nervous about it, and they, and they focused their minds, and they, and they had, as we all know by now, Romano Prodi, who became the, the next president. It's almost this time round there wasn't enough of a feeling of crisis. You talk about the, the protracted negotiations. Again, if you've been around the block as many times as I have, this is not new. It's, it's almost kind of par for the course that, you know, people are... We all know that these kind of discussions, unlike maybe other issues, Eurozone crisis or migration, I'm being a bit glib, when I say that, uh, take far more time and, and space and energy of leaders than anything else, the, the choice of the next president. Paul Adamson, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you for having me on, Ryan. That was the godfather of Brussels lobbying, Paul Adamson. Next up, the podcast panel. So welcome back to the podcast panel. Hello, Alba Finn. Hi, Ryan. The How newly you? married Alba Finn. Oh, thanks for Yay. mentioning that. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Congratulations. And hi, Lena. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alba. So this panel is going to be a hot mess, isn't it? We're doing it early on Wednesday. We're already fighting before we've even pressed record, and, and we don't even know what we're going to talk about. So strap in and enjoy the ride, folks. Um, why don't we talk about Ursula von der Leyen? And who she is. She's obviously nominated to be European Commission president, but I don't know which type of president we're going to be getting. She arrived as a blank page. She won't talk to reporters, but now all of a sudden she's being live streamed 
as she talks to MEPs. And I, I can't figure out which one we're getting. Is it conservative Ursula, lefty Ursula, royal Ursula, or some other thing? Alva? It's interesting because she's kind of going through a post-election campaign to be the commission president. Like she's, she's almost like a Spitzen candidate now. She has to go and lobby them, etc. And she might not be their pick, but she is our pick. And she needs to sell herself, I suppose, not to the electorate, but at least to the big parties. I think, obviously, all eyes are on the S&D and also on the Greens. Greens. And I thought she was making a left-wing pitch to them, wanting a gender-equal commission, a climate-neutral continent, and you were telling me, what's what's so left-wing about that? Can't Conservatives be that? Yeah, well, I think now there is a consensus around having gender equality in lots of Conservative parties. I mean, Angela Merkel is a Conservative, and she is one of the biggest proponents of having gender equality. We know that when she... There was a race to have the next leader of her party at home. She wanted a woman that was highly reported in the media. So I think that some of these issues are now kind of politically neutral. They're in the mainstream. So that's a win for the left, basically. But I don't necessarily know if some of the left were very pro-climate either you know I think it was such a thing about the, the Greens really but well, I don't exactly, think a lot of the social the Greens aren't really far right the socialist or Labour parties across Europe I don't think were very active on climate up until basically the last few years maybe last three or four mm-hmm. well Alexander Stubb agrees with you he's having a fight with me on Twitter right now <gasps> so Alex and Alva are going to be good friends I won't fight be? with you today Ryan it's alright okay mm. Flatter me. Tell me something that's going to make me feel good. Are you going to agree with that? Go. Tell us what you mean by that. I think it's, it's, it's a typical politician trying to speak to everybody, being close to everybody, making her speech acceptable by everyone now. And then Until they all share notes. Hey, she I, told the ECR, according to Dirk Jan Epping, that she would go soft on rule of law and wouldn't impose refugee quotas. Yeah. Uh, All this is beautiful. This is like the honeymoon. And then let's see when afterwards, when she's in office, how she's going to manage the commission, how she's really going to have the 50% of the women there. Are they going to get the key jobs? In this commission, we had very important portfolios for Madame Malmström, for Madame Mogherini, for Jerova. It's important to, if we say 50, but is it going to be the quality, the strategic portfolios for the women in the next commission? Or it's going to be just the a makeup, okay, we just had the 50%. And what sort of women are we going to have? Yeah, good to keep pressing. I know how to wind you up, though, Lena, uh-huh. because Federica Mogherini has just appointed 46 new ambassadors. Yes. I bet you've got an opinion on that. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, that's like Jordanian royal household for absolutely yes. <laughs> Actually, it's, uh, well, congratulations to all of them. I think it's, it's lovely to have more and more EU presence and opening in new missions all over the world. Yet again, one of the main striking um, appointments I have uh, noticed is the key important people in the house here dealing with very important issue, the Iran issue, are not going to be any longer there and not even covering the Middle East uh, region or the JCC okay, uh, so region. Let's be clearer for the listeners. Uh, yeah, Did someone get fired? No, or? no, actually, they got appointed. 
to uh, to other regions. I mean, the the head of ah, Iran. So people working on Iran here have yeah, been appointed as ambassadors. Ambassadors elsewhere. outside. So it really makes you wonder what's going to happen with with Iran. What's going to happen with the with the deal? Is the task force going to be surviving afterwards? Uh, you have a very vocal incoming high representative, uh, Mr. Borrell, about Iran. So and he was very clear about like we have to deal with it. The region has to deal with it, and Europe. A role is oh, very so there are some things you can't avoid. So maybe he'll have to do with Kosovo then too. <laughs> I think it's, it's going to be... Mr. Burrell doesn't recognize Kosovo because he doesn't want Precisely. to get into the trap of recognizing Catalonia, Catalonia. as an independent country. And that's going to be a tough sort of circle for him to square, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's going to be tough. You have the Brexit, you have the uh, crisis in the Middle East, you have Libya, you have Syria, you have uh, Venezuela. So a very... The traffic on the foreign affairs policies for the next commissioner is going to be interesting. Well, I know someone else who needs a job right now, mm. Sir Kim Darrick, about to resign as British ambassador to the US after a very treacherous person, I would say, has leaked a series of notes he sent back to London about what he, as Britain's man in Washington, thinks about the Trump administration. So who who should be fired here? Is it Kim Darrick who should have gone or is it the leaker who needs to go? Yeah, I don't think you should push any of your top level diplomats out, right? Because then it causes a precedent that you can just say, oh, Donald Trump doesn't like this person, so we need to get rid of them. And, you know, sometimes having a bit of a combative ambassador, depending on what your relationship is like, can be to your advantage. Like Gerard Arrault, the French ambassador. Mm, yeah, exactly. And also the US ambassador here equally okay. could be said to play that kind of bad cop role. Right? When he finally turned up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But Hang I think... on, I'm waiting for a US visa. We better, we better hey, make sure this one gets deleted. Hey. <laughs> no, I'd say that Donald Trump would like you. Um, like, he likes a big pop person. Wow. He likes that, a, oh, he's wow. We all believe so, yes. He, he likes a big personality. Well saved. A charming rogue. Um, no, I mean, there's a history of Donald Trump kind of going for people that you would be like, what? This person slags you off all the time, but yet you like them because he gets you in the news, you know? Mm. Anyway, I think that, yeah, you can't do that because it sets a very dangerous precedent that you will just ship off an ambassador if someone someone doesn't, doesn't like him. But I think now with a Boris Johnson government potentially coming in, I mean, he would have been rotated out anyway. You could have seen the writing on the wall, couldn't yeah, you? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, for his sake, he's mm-hmm. just probably like, oh, I'm, I'm going to leave because he doesn't want to be, I suppose, demoted in some ways. Well, he wasn't even allowed to meet with Ivanka yesterday. So the meeting went ahead after Sir Kim agreed to withdraw. And so if you can't, you're not even allowed to attend meetings in the White House, then you're not going to be a very good ambassador. Yeah, he's a persona non grata, and then why he's going to be staying there. Plus, it's not his job to put his own opinion about the president. He's a diplomat. His job is to make sure that he's taking the line of his own capital, of his own administration. Yeah, but it's a two-way street, Lena. You have to send something back to him. Yeah, but you don't need to use very weird vocab about describing a president. This is not his level. I mean, I totally disagree that an ambassador should just go and write uh, cables uh, describing personalities. His job is to describe policies, foreign policies, bringing these two countries together, finding a way where they can resolve issues that they have unsolved. But no, I mean, this is not good for the diplomacy. Or I think where I would agree Mm. there is that Kim Derrick's analysis didn't really add to what we can already hear on cable news or in any number of 
Twitter or just feeds. reading President Trump's Twitter account. I mean, you can tell we, we don't need to have leaked cables to know. I mean, yeah, but the thing is, I think as well, you should be presuming at all times, if you work in one of the diplomatic services, that you are being surveilled yeah. and that you shouldn't say things like that in cables or someone else should say it, but not you. Not at an ambassador level. I think it, it is silly, knowing all the leaking that's going on in Washington, that you would open yourself up to having that kind of criticism of a government that you are basically having to work with on a daily basis. That kind of a leak going out is, I think it shows a bit of poor judgment. And we know that this surveillance is going on all the time. So I think in some diplomatic services, you know, they say, behave like someone is always watching because they are well i was going to add another anecdote in though do you remember this the time that someone i think it was the council were rebuilding Mm. a room or something like that and they went to i don't know get rid of all the furniture and stuff and they found so many bugs from so many different governments including member states of the european union Mm. so yeah it's not just happening in far off flung places it's also happening here by Mm. governments who are in the european union Well, I don't know about the EU member states, but we hope that all of you keep listening in to EU Confidential. Boom, boom. Okay, that's all we've got time for on this episode. Thanks so much, everyone. Please join us next week. If you haven't subscribed already, please do so on the platform where you found this podcast or at politico.eu forward slash registration. As always, podcasting is a team effort. So big thanks to Antonio Fernandez, Andrew Gray, and Izzy Borshoff. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 